Welcome to episode 68 of The Photo Show. Uh, before I get to the amazing and intense conversation I had with my guest, Rola Chayette, let me of course mention that the show is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. Uh, also, I have a lot of great announcements from former guests on the show. Um, Andreana Seymour, and I've mentioned this one before, is part of an exhibition called Reimagining the Four Freedoms. Uh, and it's uh, in honor of the 75th anniversary of the painting by Norman Rockwell, known as the Four Freedoms, which was inspired by a speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in which he mentions the freedom from fear and want, as well as the freedoms of worship and speech. And Andreana is in this show along with some great artists like Ben Sean, Dorothea Lang, and Gordon Parks. Uh, so that show is up uh, May 25th through September 2nd at the Roosevelt House at 49 East 65th Street. So be sure to check that out. Next up, we have Patrice Helmar, uh, who is traveling through New Orleans and having a Marble Hill Camera Club event while down there. Uh, it's going to be at the Paper Machine at 6330 St. Claude Avenue from 6 to 9 p.m. And that is actually tonight, May 23rd. So if you're in New Orleans, go see that. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Bronx Documentary Center on June 2nd will be hosting the reception for the 2018 Photo Evidence Book Award with World Press Photo. I believe they will have the winner and the finalists. Uh, the winner is Josue Rivas for his project Standing Strong about the spiritual awakening that occurred among the people resisting the Dakota Access Pipeline. And the finalists are Zachary Canapari for Flint is a Place, an exploration of the challenges of life in Flint, Michigan, and Danielle Villasana for The Light Inside, a compelling story about the struggle of trans women in Peru. And I apologize if I mispronounced any of those names, but that will be Saturday, June 2nd at 6 p.m. for the opening reception. And you do have to RSVP for that at bronxdoc.org. Next up, we have Ephraim Zalani Mandel. He's actually getting a lot of great press for a show he curated called This Is Not Here, RE21, uh, which he did for the RE Art Show. That opens this Saturday, May 26th at 6 p.m. And that's at 630 Flushing Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. And there are something in the neighborhood of 51, 52 artists, I think. And just to give you an idea of, of Ephraim's uh, sort of taste and style, I'll read a little bit of his opening to his essay. Uh, it says, Forgo expectations of an institutional exhibition press release. Instead, read creative short written by the curator and allow it to represent all theory, thesis, and premise for This Is Not Here, RE21. It's easy to imagine if you try. So I'll just leave you with that. Uh, it looks like a really interesting and wild show. And again, it's getting a lot of great press. And before I get to uh, some of the events that Rola Chayet is up to, let me just remind you that I am curating uh, an open call uh, exhibition for the Noise Arts Garage, uh, which is part of the Noise Museum, which is run by Stockton University. And that is down in Atlantic City. And you can find out more about that at thephotoshow.org. And finally, my guest Rola Chayat has two events going on that I wanted to mention. One is a show called Appearances and Disappearances, and that was extended through May 30th. I wasn't sure uh, this episode would be out in time, uh, but that's at North of History at 445 Columbus Avenue. Uh, that's a two-person photographic exhibition with Sanaz Matsanani. Uh, also, Rola put together this amazing show called Light in Wartime, uh, which is at Apex Art in New York City. And that reception is June 6th from 6 to 8 p.m. The show runs June 7th through July 28th. 
And that has some really great artists, including Anmi Lay, David Leventhal, and Richard Moss, and, and a, a whole bunch of others. And we actually talk a little bit about all the artists in that show in this episode. And I guess that the title of that show gives you uh, some idea of what Rolla's work is about. Uh, Rolla grew up during the Lebanese Civil War, uh, the later part of the Civil War. Uh, and we have this, uh, like I said before, intense conversation about her life in Lebanon and how her mother protected her and her siblings uh, from the, just the, the kind of the horror stories of the war. And then we have this really nice discussion about one of her latest projects, which is called From Brooklyn to Beirut, a documentary about the Jewish diaspora and how the Jewish population of Lebanon uh, fled to different places around the world, including Brooklyn, uh, when life became untenable in Lebanon. We also touch upon some of Rolla's current work, which involves her grandfather's photography from his time at Aramco. We talk a little bit about her mother's book, Brownies and Kalashnikovs, a Saudi woman's memoir of American Arabia and wartime Beirut. Anyway, I don't think I can really summarize uh, briefly all the different things we talk about, but uh, I learned a lot, and, and I think if you're, if you're interested in, a, in getting a perspective of what it might be to live inside, uh, you know, a country that's in the middle of, of various civil wars and and upheavals uh, and religious conflict. Um, I think you will learn a lot too from listening to this. So uh, enjoy the show, everyone, uh, and we will talk soon. Yeah, we did. And I think I think maybe the first time I saw your work was at the MFA show. Yes. And it was uh, work that you had uh, shown before, but this time you had inverted it. It was shown as negatives from positives. Is that right? Do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, was, I, it wasn't work that I had shown before. It was oh, actually, okay. they were photographs of, you know, um, family album photographs on objects that I had carried with me from the, the days of the Civil War. And then I, I made them into photograms and uh, displayed them as, you know, a, a kind of a memory map. Uh, mm-hmm. And on the Civil War, on the Lebanese Civil War, they um, this is part of a much larger continuing body of work that you've been doing for a while. Yeah, in my work, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in war and memory, and uh, it comes from a very personal place. I was born at the height of the Lebanese Civil War in 1982, and uh, ever s- uh, from 1982 until 91, I only knew, you know, a state of war, and it was the normal. It was kind of the everyday. And war wasn't something that was completely, you know, foreign to me. It was just kind of your daily routine. So in this work, I was uh, revisiting, you know, old objects and uh, and uh, items that that carry this kind of sentimental value or reference the war in some way, and putting myself in the, in in the position of a spectator. So I, I thought of you know uh, reproducing those objects into photographs and in a way that would obscure the content in a way. So photographs were inverted, uh, they were scanned, so the scanning lines appeared and they appeared as you know as as different you know uh, representations of uh, of whatever they were they stood for. 
And I was interested in this, you know, idea of being uh, a spectator and also as war being something that's, you know, well, I, spectacular, I, right? I, it's a and, I've, and I was looking at your work on your website and you've, you've treated other images with disruptions and things like that. And I wonder if that is part of creating this separation of, you know, actual, the actual experience and then the memory of the experience, but also how it's how it's sort of pervasive in your life and it, it disrupts your life and it, you know, it, it, um, it makes, it, it colors sort of the way you see the world. Does that sort of play into the, the way you treat the work, what you've been doing in your projects? Yeah, in a way. I mean, so the war, the war wasn't really, it was a disruption in hindsight, but as a child, it was lots of fun. And uh, in a way, it was like quite absurd to think that, these objects and those memories of a very like you know painful and bloody history are actually sentimental and they're very sort of in a way nostalgic so i call it kind of war nostalgia so i was revisiting that you know that moment and that feeling and trying to distance myself and look at it from you know from the outside as a person who who's just, you know, observing, you know, old family albums of us dressed up as, you know, militiamen building checkpoints or uh, newspaper clippings from the year that I was born uh, of, you know, soldiers and just various little uh, things here and there which, you know, tell tell the story of the war. But in a way, I wanted to tell my own story and mm. my, own, my own narrative and control sort of the narrative that would be, you know, generated. Oh, so, so you're not, you're not representing... A kind of trauma or anything like that you're representing how it was just a part of your life yeah so i mean yeah so it wasn't really a trauma the lebanese civil war wasn't a really a trauma for me it was definitely a, a trauma for my parents sure for my mother in particular who who uh, thanks to her we didn't experience i mean we did we lived it every day going to school we would have to drive through you know checkpoints with militiamen we'd be in school the bombings would happen we'd have to rush to the auditorium to you know take shelter um, we'd have a dinner party and then uh, people would have to scream over the sounds of bombs and so it was it was just kind of something we took for granted when the shelling got too bad my mom would hide us in our in in, in the bathroom and say it's just raining really really hard and this is the safest spot in the mm. in the house so all of those those moments we naturalized and also our bedtime was really early it was before the evening news and we associated the jingle that would come on before the news with our bedtime uh. and my mom would make sure that we'd be asleep we also had the creative hour where we would have to sit and and draw for like two hours straight and and she would use our i mean she she studied child education so she would analyze our drawings and see if we were be getting disturbed oh, by the war and right. sort of like, you know, uh, gear her parent parenting that way. So in terms of trauma, I think in 2006, there was another war and I was there. It was a 34-day war. And I was an adult at that time. And so I was fully aware of what was happening and of the danger and that, you know, that life isn't not going to end because your parents are protecting you. It's, it could end at any moment, right? And um, I was there alone with my mom. Uh, my, my siblings had evacuated. They, my brother went on a, a Greek warship, and my, my two other sisters were evacuated with the Austrian Cobra elite through Syria, and then from Damascus flew out. But I decided to stay because I didn't want my mom to stay alone, and also just felt, you know, I... And yeah. your mom wanted to stay? 
she didn't want to leave her house and her pets and mm. everything you know behind in case anything happened she, she just felt like she had to stay so that i mean that experience kind of put my experience of you know my childhood experience in a in a different light and i understood war differently and in some ways you were taking care of your mother Right. Yeah, or and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. So it was. Yeah. I mean, we and also that moment, I I was able to. So our house was situated. Uh, it's in the suburbs of Beirut, so it's like a twenty-minute drive from Beirut, and um, and then south you go to Saida, so it's right in the middle. And uh, during that two thousand and six war, there were there there were naval war, warships, you know, that were blockading the waters. The airport, which was just ten minutes away, was the first thing to be targeted, and we had like a three hundred and sixty degree view of all the bombardments that were happening, and all different kinds of you know uh, bombs were falling. And we're speaking of smart bombs, and you know, like there were drones. It was just it was a, a playground for like a testing ground for right. um, bombs. And I remember one moment when it was at night. Uh, I was on the balcony and. I saw they would throw firebombs and uh, first to light up the sky, and then there would be like a, a trickle of like fireworks, kind of like looking like fireworks. And for like a split second, I thought, "Wow, this looks really beautiful." And then, you know, once the bomb hit the ground and disaster happened, it was a different story. Mm. So this like beauty in in ugliness and is also very present. In my work. In your work, yeah. Um, it's but, well, there's a at, when you're a child, you have childhood fascination with things, and you don't fully realize the devastation of these uh, these beautiful missile trails and bright lights and and things. It's and you're, it sounds like your your mother was very careful about keeping the trauma away as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was a superhero in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. We definitely want to talk also more about your work and and the way you think of art and war together. But I I, I don't think we can um, we can get away from the the story of your upbringing and, and just go back uh, because uh, you know we, we we did start getting into it and your I know your your background is is complicated in in where you were born and where your mother's from and your parents and also so wh- why don't we just get into that? Sure. Um, so uh, my mother, <laughs> which also informs your art very much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my mother is uh, Saudi Arabian, and uh, uh, my dad is Lebanese. They met while she was studying in Beirut. She was at an all-girls college, and my dad was working as a journalist in the Al-Nahad newspaper. They met, fell in love, and then on the day of her graduation, her parents were there, and she asked her father if she could marry my dad, <clears throat> and he said a flat-out no. Saudi women are not allowed to marry non, non-Saudis, and he whisked her away back to Saudi Arabia. Oh. She was in uh, more or less like house arrest, and uh, oh, wow. she was you know, desperate to get back to my father. So she came up with this uh, ingenious idea. Her sister was studying medicine in London, at, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Maidstone, uh, in England. And um, she said, why don't we go visit my, my sister? And so he said, okay, but your mom's gonna go with you. So that was a plan to, you know, to meet up with my dad in Elope. Uh, they, they managed to you know, figure out how he, he, he would come to the house while her mother was sleeping. Uh, they met in the like early, early, early morning, like four in the morning, 
caught the first milk train, you know, out, and then flew to Beirut, got married. My grandfather was a judge, which made it much easier for them to get married. Wow. And uh, Did you say milk train? Yeah, that was the earliest train available. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so they rolled the milk train out. Yeah. And uh, then the war broke out and, and we were created. And uh, <laughs> that's where my story begins. That's where it begins. Yeah. When is that about? Like what year? What, 60s? Yeah, it was the, the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think probably like 68. And, and so that, that does kind of also tell you that Lebanon then was also much more open absolutely as yeah. a society yeah, right? yeah it was and it continues Culturally. to be i mean it mm-hmm. is it is still it is more or less the more open uh, tolerant of you know the countries in the middle east mm-hmm. um and that's why many i mean if, if we're going to go back to the story of the lebanese jews like yeah. after the creation of israel in 1948 many jews in other countries like Egypt and uh, uh, Iraq, mm. uh, who were facing some sort of, you know, persecution because of the confusion between Zionism and Judaism, they sought refuge in Lebanon and they came to Lebanon and 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 settled there, and that's what hiked up their their population. That's when the population started to grow yeah. of Lebanese, mm. the Lebanese Jewish community. Yeah. And just just to go back a l- tiny bit uh, for a second, it was at the end of your mother's relationship then with her parents. So it went through a quiet phase where they weren't speaking to each other for a lot for a while, and uh, we grew up not knowing our Saudi, uh, you know, our grandfather that that well. Mm-hmm. And we never visited Saudi Arabia. The first time I ever visited Saudi Arabia was like maybe seven, eight years ago, oh. and. I'm I'm the only one from my siblings who who's visited, so it was quite a foreign place to us. You're the. Did you say you were the last of five children in your yeah. family? And yeah, you times have a twin. two. So yeah. me and <laughs> right. my twin are the last of five. Twin children. sister, twin brother, sister, twin sister. Yeah. yeah, and that was I think you said 1982. Yeah. Yeah. So your life, so you grew up during the whole time of the civil war. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I, I think when I was, I mean. How old was I when the war ended? Nine, ten? Mm. Ten, something like that. Yeah, ten, ten years old. And um, also, I mean, my work deals with these pockets of amnesia that exist uh, post-war in, in, in Lebanon's history. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this like post-war climate, there are lots of things that aren't talked about and aren't addressed. And the Lebanese Jews are one, one right. such thing. There's also this project I did on the missing, the people who went missing, 17,000 people who went missing after the war and have not been accounted for or, you know, there's no effort to find out what has happened to them. What was that uh, project called, the 17,000 missing? Yeah, it was called Lakam, which means like a piece of bread. And there are silkscreen prints of uh, the faces of uh, people who went missing during the war on Arabic bread, mm. on like pizza bread. Yeah. And I was using the the medium as a message in a way. Mm-hmm. So the fragility of the bread after it dries and uh, sort of the, the, the photographs that remain from the missing also go through this, you know, what do you call it? Um, some kind of transformation? Some kind yeah, of transformation. They lose sort of uh, definition. Uh-huh. The colors get, uh, oh, you yeah. know, they get torn up. They just, they decay. Bread also decays at a, a faster pace. So it was kind of like putting one image on the other. And right. Speaking right. about this, the idea of disappearance. And, hmm. and of course, bread is 
so culturally important and relevant in so many ways in the Middle East. Yeah, right? it can be interpreted in many ways. But mm-hmm. I mean, what, what drew me to bread is that also during the siege, uh, what I remember were the endless lines in front of the, you know, the, the bakeries. And many times because those people were just standing in line, they would be the target range for snipers. And mm. so many people sort of, you know, lost their lives as they were waiting for to get bread mm-hmm. and bread was present in every single household you would have like stacks and stacks of those like plastic bags of, of bread so it's uh, yeah symbolic in many ways mm-hmm. so then when when do you leave Lebanon so I graduated in I graduated from high school in 2000 and okay. I, I attended the American Community School which w- it was in Beirut and then studied in the American University of Beirut. I studied history. Oh, okay. And then graduated in 2003 and then from 2003 until 2005 I was at the Florence Academy of Arts. So oh, that's yes. when I left. And you you got a you received a, a diploma in intensive drawing. Is that from your experience with your mother having you draw? Is that where you picked up your love I of drawing? I guess so. I mean, I think, you know, like growing up in a war zone really inspires creativity because there are long hours of, you know, <laughs> Uh, it, it's quite boring, and you're you're pretty much at home, and you have to create a life for yourself there. So you pass you know pass time by drawing, by by creating games, by coming up with a lot of you know imaginative solutions to like being under house arrest kind of. And um, I I was always interested in drawing, and I, it, it, it's it stuck with me throughout. And I after I had wanted to study uh, drawing uh, painting. Uh, in the American University of Beirut, but the fine arts department had shut down, uh, mm. and history was my second choice. So was after it just that, general history. Yeah, it was mainly Middle Eastern history. Mm-hmm. So it was historical st- studies, but I took a few courses in you know non Middle Eastern history. But my emphasis was uh, yeah mm-hmm. in the region. So um, I know from being in the Middle East that. The American sense of Middle Eastern history is very different <laughs> from what is taught in the actual <laughs> Middle East uh, history. Do you, do you did you find that when you came here that that your your understanding of religion and culture and wars and and conflict were that you had a perspective on it, a side of the story, so to speak, that was very different from what generally is known here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being on the receiving end uh, is a different experience and having lived, you know, the wars that, okay, the Civil War may have been a sectarian war, but it was very much controlled by powers that were, you know, greater than the local population. And coming here, I mean, uh, in the U.S., war is very much, uh, it's a production and uh, it's... uh, Everyone here is a spectator, so the war is televised, and you see things through the television screen or, you know, print. I mean, it's never really felt or experienced uh, in in the tangible sense. We have the two big events that everybody talks about is Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and that's, for most people, the closest they've witnessed war. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Yeah. So those, I mean, those were isolated events, and they 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 happened, and they were tragic, and they and they also caused quite an awakening in the city and, and a transformation in the way that people view tragedy and tragic events and and experience that kind of uh, event. So yeah, definitely, and I think that project that we talked about earlier, 
uh, which Patrice titled Selke Oemne. It, it was it started off as Patrice Almar titled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she curated a show and and I showed that work. And oh, okay. It was called Selke Oemne. It was lifted from my mother's book, oh. uh, where she uh, was referencing what people would say about you know the roads that were clear to pass through that didn't have militia men. They would say. The street is Selke uh, Oemne. It's safe. It's safe and sound, and you can pass. So, um, when was that show? That show was uh, last year. Okay. I think it was last year, yeah. And you're also curating a show now called Light in Wartime? Yes, I am. So, that, that's actually quite relevant to what we're talking about mm-hmm. now. I mean, this Light in Wartime show, it's, uh, it's a combination of, I think, it, 12, 12 photographers who are uh, addressing new ways of uh, representing war. And it's all through like uh, alternative photographic methods, right? So uh, there's like Richard Moss who uses infrared film and Anne Miley who who photographs the sort of constructed landscapes which simulate, you know, the landscapes of the war zones that the the army men are going to fly to. There's also Joe Ratcliffe, who's a South African photographer who, who, who photographs landscapes, which are just, you know, beautiful sort of lush, you know, uh, fields that look like nothing has ever happened, but there are sites of, you know, trauma and mass graves. And a couple of others, another, Nilo Izadi, who's a, who creates a camera obscura photographs using sniper holes. Uh, and... And this is, uh, in a way, sort of addressing, you know, photojournalists and the, the, the images that are uh, generated as a result of, you know, uh, the, the war media. If you want, I, it's consider. an impressive list, and I don't want to leave anyone out. I'll, I'll say the names, and you'll tell me yeah. when I pronounce them incorrectly. <laughs> Vartan Avakian. Yeah, so Vartan Avakian is a, is a Lebanese-Armenian artist, and he uses uh, dust particles that are on, uh, on uh, this from the silver nitrate that... Uh, mm and then uh, uh, amplifies them and creates photographs out of them. Hmm. Alan D'Souza? Uh, yeah, he's a Kenyan, Kenyan artist, yeah. and uh, he has a series called Cluster, uh, which is uh, reflecting on, on, on vision. So it's, it's a beautiful and, and very powerful work. Yeah. Zia Gafik? Zia Gafik is a Bosnian uh, photographer, and he um, has photographed uh, the, the forensic... Um, the objects that were, that that were pulled out of mass, the mass grave mm. in uh, this is Srebrenica, in this show we're showing uh, a couple of his of the eyeglasses of the mm-hmm. victims of the of the massacre. Yeah, Rula Halawani. She's a Palestinian artist who um, uses uh, whose work is very much rooted in like pa- the Palestinian you know issue. And um, she has a, a work on the checkpoints in uh, Palestine, in Israel. Um, and uh, she x-rays them, you know, multiple times until they lose definition. Just to sh- Because apparently the Palestinians that pass through those uh, checkpoints right. have to go through multiple x-rays. So it's just using... And then there's also Siba Curtis, who's, right. whose work is about the... It's called Heartbeat. Um, and it's about the heartbeat detectors that are used to find, to locate, uh, you know... Uh, People hiding. Yeah, immigrants yeah. who are trying to cross mm-hmm. the border in secret. Right. Uh, Nilo Asadi, did you already speak Yeah, Nilo Asadi yeah. uh, creates uh, camera right. obscuras from Snapchat. And you, you mentioned Amile, and then David Leventhal, who does the, the toy characters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... Uh, 
You mentioned Richard Moss, uh, Joe Ratcliffe. Yeah, I yeah. mentioned her as well. And Sebastiano Tomado Piccolomini. Yeah, so he's actually the only photojournalist in, in this list. Um, <laughs> and he has a series of portraits of uh, uh, the Syrian uh, uh, fighters. Uh, photographed using the lights streaming in from a from from, from a sniper hole. Uh, yeah, this is. I mean, it's quite a, a show. What was uh, what was the process like of putting all this together? I, I imagine you reach out to a lot of galleries and reps, and as well as artists. Yeah, directly. I mean, the yeah. it, the process it's 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 very time consuming <laughs> and uh, it's it's ongoing. So we've just closed in on the artist lists and the works and the budget and everything, and mm. now the fun part starts. Uh, and this is scheduled for this summer. Yeah, so it opens on June 6th, and it's all until the end of July, July 27th. And where is it? It's at Apex Art. Oh, okay. Yeah, Apex Art in Soho. Yeah. We're jumping a little bit around because I think your life experience is so much a part of your work. And we left off at you in Florence studying drawing. And then did you return back to Lebanon after? Yeah, so... That's 2006? Uh, I returned in 2005 and uh, I was, you know, getting into my paintings and doing commissions and, you know, it was an exciting time. I finished school and I was, you know, into into the art. And, into and the is art everybody world. still there? Mother, father, siblings? Or? Yeah. In <laughs> Lebanon? Yeah. No, so my parents are in Lebanon, but my siblings are spread out. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I returned to Lebanon for a year, but that year was also quite, you know, it was also full of, like, assassination, the the... Prime Minister uh, Rafi al-Hariri was assassinated then. And uh, there were a series of other governmental officials who were assassinated. And then the the war broke out in 2006. Mm. So that was a big disruption, not because of the war. I mean, the war, we lived through it. It was fine and everything. But then on the day of the ceasefire, we decided to go see all the destruction that had happened in the south. And on the way back, I had a big car accident. And I broke my neck. So I was kind of uh, out for like a year re- recovery. And that, you know, paused my, you know... Everything. Everything. <laughs> right. And I, from there, uh, well, once I recovered, I went went to Barcelona. I, I, this um, program called Metaphora, it was like an eight-month art program. Uh, that was The focus was on, you know, contemporary art. And then from there to Berlin where I was working on my art and working in galleries. And then once I, f- I, I curated a show called uh, Some Thoughts on Pain, I helped curate a show at uh, Art Laboratory Berlin, which included a Palestinian artist, Taisa Dibi, who was, at the time, he was the chair of the art department in the American University in Cairo. Mm. And he, this show was Aisa Dibi and um, an, another Iraqi artist. And then he told me about an opening in AUC, in the American University, he said, why don't you apply? So I applied, and that took me to Cairo to teach. I was there for two years. Oh, okay. I, yeah, so I taught a, I taught, um, a course on art, film, and design. Mm-hmm. And it was a euphoric time because the revolution had just happened, and so people oh. were still very hopeful. Um, this is part of Arab Spring. Yeah. yeah. It, it, was, it was the most amazing you know, time to be there. It was also during the uprisings against Morsi, who was now in jail, 
And uh, I mean, there was a lot of hope for, you know, mm -hmm. better times, which unfortunately didn't happen. Didn't quite pan out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, and the, the military took over. and Yeah. Right. So, I mean, all, all, during this time, I was, I was painting and I was photographing, but I wasn't, you know, just strictly photographing mm -hmm. until I did a workshop with Joe Ratcliffe, who's in this show. Ratcliffe, it was right. just a summer, uh, summer workshop at the Salzburg Academy of Art. And she was giving a, a workshop on, um, it was called Not a Thousand Words. You know, it was a, photo a photography workshop. And her work interested me immensely and also gave me some sort of direction on how I could approach my work. Uh, because she deals with conflict and uh, she's a South African photographer that deals with, you know, spaces and places in the aftermath. And um, it she became my 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 new mentor is that the beginning of your real interest in photography then? yeah i think so oh, okay what year is that then in 2012 was it or 2000 okay. yeah this is while you're teaching in cairo yeah or? yeah okay so i mean while i was teaching in cairo as well i was in a residency at uh in this informal settlement called uh which is a super like overcrowded informal settlement and uh, the art the art uh, space th where the residency was held was right right in the center called uh, um, Lewa. and uh, over there I also um, you know worked on a photography project which was included in my application to Columbia mm. and so that takes us to um, to Columbia because you were there from 2014 to 16 I think roughly y right? yeah yeah and when did you start working on the From Brooklyn to Beirut documentary? So <laughs> while I was at Columbia, I wasn't living in Brooklyn. And mm -hmm. so when I, when I started this project, I had to commute back and forth. And it's like an hour and a half from, you know, the Upper West Side to Ocean Parkway. <laughs> but um, I was, you know, my curiosity led me, led me there. Uh, so I started this project in, I think, probably like the second semester of Columbia. I was uh, traveling back and forth to Lebanon. And uh, I had met my, uh, Raymond Sasson, who's, who's one of the central, you know, characters in, in the documentary. And I, the more I sort of learned about the community, the more I met people, the more I heard their stories, uh, the more I felt that this, you know, photography project had to turn into a documentary. In the beginning, I was just, you know, hearing stories, going back, locating places, photographing, you know, the, the graves and the synagogues and... Uh, the, the homes uh, that, that still stand, but are very, very much abandoned. And in a way, I was, you know, bringing uh, the voices of a, a disappeared community to the voices that no longer sort of uh, inhabit those spaces, right? So I was also interested in the post-war landscape, the architecture of, of Beirut, and all those abandoned buildings, and, and trying to find the real sort of so stories that belong to them. In some ways, were you hearing the stories in Brooklyn from the Lebanese Jewish community, sort of taking that back with you, and then they're documenting the places in a kind of collaboration with the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting because many of, the, many of the Lebanese Jews left before the sort of landscape or the geography of Lebanon changed. And so they would be telling me, you know, I lived here and there was this like huge billboard and there was this gas station. And some of them would draw, you know, the maps to the, leading to their house. I would take it to go back to Beirut and try to like figure out, okay, mm. this was the, you know, the President Shamoun's palace, which is no longer there. 
and it's now like a parking lot, you know. So it was really hard to sort of place their stories and uh, their sort of vision of Beirut with present-day Beirut. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't sound like you grew up particularly religious in any way, right? No, my, 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 I mean, my parents are very knowledgeable. And my father <laughs> has, uh, has read all three uh, books, but he, <laughs> we were never... The big three books. <laughs> yeah, so we, he was very... Um, they were very against us, you know, growing up religious because of the sectarian mm-hmm. war. And we actually didn't know what religion we were uh, f- until, you know, we were old enough to understand it. So they would ask us, what are you today? And we're like, oh, I think we're, you know, Shia or we're, <laughs> we're Christian. We didn't, we didn't grow up with a right. religion. So when you, when you approached the, the Jewish, the Lebanese Jewish community in Brooklyn, how did they receive you? I mean, how, how did you present your story? I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. I, when I first approached the Lebanese Jewish community, I was also asking, you know, how am I going to be received? I know that it's a very, uh, you know, they're a very close community. And um, I didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to find an entryway. But when I, when I met Raymond, uh, Raymond has a, an antique silver store on uh, King's Highway. We met one day at his store. And I mean, from the first minute I felt at home I mean he was born in Lebanon lived there the first two years of his life but grew up as a Brooklyn boy I mean he's a hundred percent you know from Brooklyn but he's also a hundred and fifty percent Lebanese (laughs) so he spoke Arabic better than I did even though I grew up in Lebanon and uh, his mannerisms his you know culture was very very Lebanese and th- that was the same with many, I mean, many other people from the community who I met. It was uh, what's interesting and what interested me in that community was that their, the way that they preserve the culture is, uh, I mean, it's something else. Hmm. It's, is there, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of, um, uh, they must speak three languages, right? English, uh, Arabic, and Hebrew. They probably stu- and French study, as well. oh, study in, he- yeah. oh, of course, French, right? Yeah. Study in Hebrew, uh, speak maybe be behind closed doors in Arabic and and then in English out in the world, right? You and know what? Actually, most of the Lebanese Jews spoke Arabic before mm-hmm. they spoke Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And Hebrew was only used for prayers. That's what I was saying. Yeah, they yeah. study in Hebrew, right? Yeah, yeah but yeah. they didn't like, for instance, Raymond's mother didn't know how to speak Hebrew. And he mm. says this one story when she went to Israel and she was sitting on the bench, you know, on the corniche and... Uh, a woman started to speak to her in Hebrew, and she said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Hebrew. And then the woman started to speak to her in Yiddish, and she said, if I don't speak Hebrew, I definitely <laughs> don't speak Yiddish. So it was that, you know... I that speak Brooklyn. <laughs> I speak Arabic right. Right, and English, but... But, um, and that, well, and, and I don't know if this is part of the documentary. I, I've seen some clips. Is there also tension or just... Um, Acceptance between the different Jewish communities in Brooklyn? With I mean, are they part of a, the larger Jewish community, or are they separate? Or well, I mean, I I learned this along the way, and I realized I mean the the the, the community in Brooklyn is um, the the Lebanese Syrian Jewish community is is very closed, and 
they do distinguish themselves from the Ashkenazi uh, population and also within the community. So let's say like between the Syrian and Egyptian Jews, there are some, some sort of distinctions. Are they mostly Sephardic or do they not identify either as Ashkenazi or Sephardic? They strongly identify as Sephardic. They do, okay. Yeah, yeah. so the Lebanese and Syrian and Egyptian and Iraqi are mm. Sephardic and Mizrahi, but they feel closer to, let's say, um, a, a Lebanese Muslim or a Lebanese Christian mm. than they do to a, uh, an Ashkenazi, just because mm. of the cultural heritage which kind of brings that kind of bond. And it's, kind of, it's, it's what I experienced when I met you know, Raymond. But also they, there, there is this question of, and what I was trying to, you know, what I was investigating in this documentary was this idea of the, the, the identity of the Arab Jews. Um, after the creation of Israel and after the emergence of Zionism, this understanding of what it is to be a Jew in the Middle East changed a lot. And, uh, you know, politics kind of changed the way uh, re religious identity was viewed. And right, I think you mentioned in, uh, an I think, uh, let's see, it was written, oh, I wrote it down and I, because I want to give proper credit. You spoke to Stepfeed, uh, an article by Nadine Maslum. Mm. And I, I think you mentioned that it was that, that shift from no longer seeing a difference between uh, an Arabic Jew and a Zionist that, that also led to the, the violence and Jews leaving Lebanon, right? Yeah, so, I mean, many of the Lebanese Jews left as a result of the war, but they are also uh, may, uh, afraid of the backlash of the conflict and mm. that they would maybe be mistaken for, you know, being allies with, you know, Zionism, and that would complicate their, their, their situation. Uh, I mean, the war was yeah, complicated, as we all know, and there were so many different sides to it and different allegiances. So it was hard to, to find your, your zone and to feel protected. And they were a tiny community, and they didn't really have a Zaim, which is like uh, a religious leader who's uh, yeah, involved in politics, who, who protects the sect. They didn't really have that. They were more aligned with the... Kind of know, like a, a representative here or a senator here. Yeah, 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 who has a seat in the parliament and who has some kind of influence and who kind of steers the way for each sectarian group. Hmm. But so uh, back to that. So, they, so they, they started to leave after 48 and then they started to leave. Uh, they left in waves and they, uh, after the 67 war, that's when most of them left. And I think the, the population plummeted to like, I don't know, like 2,000 or 1,000. By 82, there was just a couple. And of your family, who's left <laughs> in Lebanon? Who's left in Lebanon? My, my parents are, are living mm -hmm. there now. Okay. Um, and you go back frequently? Yeah, I go back to visit them. Mm -hmm. How yeah. about siblings? They visit frequently as well? Or? Yeah, yeah, they all do. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my sister's there now, my twin sister, because she uh, just gave birth to twins. Oh, my so God. She's wow. <laughs> <laughs> so she's to twin girls. So she's there, but she is based in New Jersey. She teaches at Rutgers. She's a professor of comparative literature. Oh, okay. Yeah, huh. and so she, uh, so she's coming back uh, in September. So is she still have the family name, or did? She yeah, yeah, yeah. She okay. Did, yeah. What's so? What's your sister's full name? Yasmin Khayat. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, and that's that was actually going to be a question of mine. The pronunciation of your last name. It's more of a Khayat. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Khayat in in Arabic means tailor. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. It actually looked up your last name to oh, see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it came up as Taylor. It also came up as um, She Who Knows or She Knows. Anyway. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I have to look into that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, um, uh, but our last name was actually a fake last name because uh, my family uh, was uh, from the Al Zain family, and then they were escaping uh, Ottoman persecution, and they changed their name to uh, Hayat. Oh, because yeah, it also comes up as a male Arabic first name, I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because there's a, the Hayat. There are there are Lebanese Christians, uh, Muslims, and Jews from mm. the Hayat family. And I remember when the the cemetery in you know, which which happened to be on the front line on the uh, green line in Beirut, the Jewish cemetery uh, was completely open. I mean, we I used to go with my sister and we would like look at the the names and some of the names were written in Hebrew, some in Arabic, and there was one name written in Arabic which I think his name was Yusuf Hayat. It was amazing, yeah, to think that. <laughs> Hey, this family name was spread across the right. Site, so, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so now, what? Where are you with the documentary now? Sort of, what stage is it in? So, I mean, I this is my first documentary, and I didn't know how long and how expensive and how <laughs> time-consuming uh, a documentary is. Um, I've been working on it since two thousand and fifteen. 14. And you, you actually 15? just came back a few weeks ago from working on it, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it in spurts now. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I go back to Lebanon, I film a few things here and there. It was more intensive like a few months ago, but uh, now I'm, I'm looking for funding to, mm-hmm. to complete it. Uh, it's been self-funded so far. I uh, we have uh, I, I have a um, how about uh, a Kickstarter? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the next step. <laughs> I have a 40-minute uh, version out, which was screened, oh, wow. actually, at the American Jewish Historical Society um, a couple of months ago. How was it received? It was very, very, very interesting. Um, the, the feedback from the audience was, was, was very interesting. They were mostly... Uh, interesting, positive? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. positive. I mean, m- most of the people were, I think, of uh, Lebanese or Syrian uh, mm. Jewish you know, background. And uh, there's this... incredible like uh, curiosity and hunger and thirst to see what Lebanon is today and uh, the nostalgia that exists in that community is intense so there was a lot of you know uh, yeah interest uh, the people you're speaking to uh, you said there was um, I I think you mentioned one person who actually was born in Lebanon but uh, how many generations removed like how far back does it go the the people you're speaking to from living in Lebanon um so, for instance, uh, Raymond, Raymond's family left in uh, 1971, I think, 1972. And his mother um, was in her 40s, I think, when she left. So I'm, she lived, now she's in her 80s. So, I mean, half her life was lived in, in Lebanon and now, you know, the second half in, in Brooklyn. But they're still living very, very, very uh, Lebanese lives in terms of mm. like the the society that they've created, the food that they eat, the music that they listen to, the language that they speak. And do you also recognize it like very easily? Meaning like, is it the same 
sort of culture that you grew up with? Yeah, but yeah. but it's also a culture that's in a way you know exaggerated in a in a nice in a beautiful light. So they they've preserved whatever is beautiful about Lebanese culture. Mm -hmm. I know it a bit like sort of tarnished now, and, and it's mixed with a lot of like Western influences, and it's a different thing. But they like still listen to Um Kulthum or Abdul Wahab, who are the you know famous Egyptian singers. And they have, you know, they're very nostalgic to a Lebanon that no longer exists. So I was also interested in hearing about a mm -hmm. country that I've only heard about in stories, right? It's funny you mentioned that. You just reminded me of something when I was, when I was, you know, hanging out with Palestinians in Bethlehem and all. And Egyptian music and television and actors and actresses, they were like the Hollywood yeah. of the Middle East, right? I mean, there was a, that was a real cross-cultural experience yeah absolutely yeah. and it still is i mean mm -hmm. even when you walk in ocean parkway you'll hear like um Kulstum, you know being coming in through through the window yeah. right yep. uh it, yeah it's amazing even though like many uh many people might not agree with you know many people from that community there's also this uh controversy over what is an arab jew right mm. Many of them don't like to associate their Arabness, identify as Arabs because that associates them with, you know, the Arab nationalist ideology right. or with, the, you know, the you know, other causes which they don't want But then there's the Al-Shahad camp, which uh, embraces this Arabness and says that we come from the Arab world and this is our culture and it's sort of politics that divided us and led us to think that we're, you know, islands on our own. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's complicated. And, and that was a little bit of where I was going with um, in terms of how many generations removed people were. I mean, I, and, you know, the idea of um, the experience of depending on when you live there. And uh, have you spoken to people, come across people who've, who remember a kind of... Um, golden age of of tolerance a golden age where everybody lived neighbors you know uh, of different faiths lived next to each other absolutely i'm um all the stories that i was hearing were about how you know their muslim and you know christian neighbors would you know help them out during shabbat they'd come in and light the candles for them or you know it was just it was one big family there was no no such thing as you're Jewish. I'm Christian. I'm I'm Muslim. Um, it, it it was a different it was a it was a different existence, but then you know when politics entered the scene, things changed, and when it's sort of people's identities changed in a way. Yeah. Uh, but when I went back in this documentary, we go back to Lebanon and with Raymond, uh, Raymond Sasson. And uh, he wanted to, you know, locate uh, the school that his father was a principal of. It was the Allianz School, which was a school for, you know, the, the Jewish uh, kids in Saida. And he wanted to locate his mom's old house, uh, her summer house, which is up in the mountains in Hamdun, where there's a beautiful, like, very grand synagogue, which still exists. It's, mm. it's a shell of what it was, but it's, it's, uh, it's still there. So we were going on quite an ad adventure, you know, asking people and try, you know, going through this like memory map, trying to locate uh, the place. Um, and Raymond was being quite open about, you know, who, you know, his 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 religion, and he was received with open arms. You know, mm. he was welcomed, and people were saying, you know, we want the Jews of Lebanon to return. So I mean, the Lebanese who who like experienced Lebanon before the war are you know very nostalgic for the community and there's on equal sides like 
they're always wondering, you know, what happened to their neighbors or what happened to their friends and what became of them. And and on the other side, you know, the, the Lebanese Jewish community living in Brooklyn are you know, also trying to locate their friends on Facebook or mm. uh, establish some kind of connection. Yeah, I think what's what's really interesting about this documentary is we're not talking about ancient history, right? When people think of the Middle East, they think of it as a just a, a millennium of impossible problems. But what you're actually what you're describing is, is all pretty recent history, um, and people who are still alive who would still know each other if they found each other, right? Yeah, and that that actually happened. So hmm. uh, another another like quite central character in the documentary is Rabbi Ili Abadi, who used to be the, the head of the Edmund Safra Synagogue, which is the synagogue for uh, Lebanese Jews in Manhattan. And uh, when I spoke to him, he, he was showing me old family photographs. And then he, he pointed to uh, um, you know, an older couple and he said, this is, uh, this is Madame Haridi and, uh, and her husband. And they were Druze and they were our neighbors. We lived in the same building. I think they were lived in the floor below them. And he said, I would really, li- really like to find my neighbors. So I did my research <laughs> and I, I I looked up. I mean, the Haridi family is huge. It's like mm. it's 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 a really large family. And the name uh, Jihad and Ziad Ziad Haridi, who were the names of the, his neighbors, are there's like ten ten of each, ten to twenty of each. So I contacted a whole bunch, and I managed to locate uh, the, the, uh, a man called Ziad Haridi, who happened to be the, the cousin of uh, Rabbi Abadi's uh, neighbor. And he said, oh, if you're going to be in Lebanon this summer, I'll be happy to take you over to his house and meet him. So we did that, hmm. and uh, then we, we called uh, Rabbi Abadi on, on WhatsApp. And uh, they reconnected after, you know, 40 years of wow. not knowing anything about each other. Were you there? When yeah, they, I filmed oh, yeah. it. So that, I mean, oh, that's, yeah. that's part of the, it, it's one of the moments in the documentary. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, is that a spoiler? <laughs> 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 oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so what, um, outside of the documentary, photographically, what are you working on? Well, right now I'm... Um, I'm kind of revisiting my my grandfather's archives. Mm. Um, More memory work? Yeah, so he was a photographer. I I didn't mention that. He was a photographer for Aramco, which was the the oil company in Saudi Arabia. Right. He did their PR work. And this uh, is, wait, this is your grandfather on your mother's side. Yeah, the side you're oh. So uh, after he passed away, he left behind you know a vast archive of photographs which span you know the history of Saudi Arabia. So from we're speaking from the 1930s up until you know the 2000s, and also photographs from around the, the, the Middle East, so in Alexandria and Syria, and uh, because th- that's where his siblings lived or my grandmother's family lived. And uh, are there pictures of you know work and oil fields and things yeah. like that? Yeah. So you have the, like one of the earliest photographs is uh, it, it's uh, it's on the back. He's written. He was also very sort of meticulous about you know nice writing cataloging yeah cataloging yeah. the so the date is written on everything and then like a description of what's Ugh. happening in the in in the That's photo. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So the earliest one is from 1937, and it's written in like light pencil, and it says on the seashore. And 
Then you have another one of like the very beginnings of the, the discovery of oil. So you have like, you know, um, Saudi Bedouins with like uh, American an, an oil uh, rig and all. Yeah, yeah, with like the oil sort of shooting yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you sort of begin to see the big, you know, oil tankers and you see the development. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Boy, but you want to talk about Middle East history. You, you can't not talk about oil. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I mean, the beginning of, you know, also an empire, right, that, that grew as a result of the discovery of oil. And uh, it's interesting because he, so he, he was among the first Saudis to, to be employed by Aramco. Mm. And uh, when, he, when he worked there, uh, he was brought in, he didn't know a word of English, and they told him, you know, we're going to hire you as an English teacher. <laughs> And he said, but I don't speak English. They said, okay, you learn English, you know, teach yourself, and you're going to be teaching the, 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 the Saudi laborers who are being brought oh, in. Oh, just so they could work for the yeah. company, right? As opposed to maybe yeah. finding even, someone who spoke Arabic. And yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he learned English and then started to teach it, and then he became, uh, uh, he started to work in the PR, uh, the PR department, uh, he became a TV show host, and also he was the kind of the private photographer for the king. So we have oh, lots of, wow. you know, up close and personal photographs of the king. So how did that work survive? Like, what was the sort of chain of uh, custody? It, I mean, it, it existed in his, you know, personal. Uh, they were like in in uh, photo albums and shoe boxes, and but he was very tidy. So everything is like perfectly, uh, you know, preserved. Mm. Um, but then you also but, have. But, but what I mean, what I guess what I'm getting at is, you, your mother had that separation from that family. Oh yeah, family. she reconciled later on in, oh, in life. Okay. So she, they reconciled somehow. <laughs> she made an effort to, you know. Was he much older at that point? Then I mean, is no, it? No, I think uh, I mean, uh, he would visit us in Austria occasionally, oh. like one or two times. He would come when we were still kids and visit and uh, I was too young to remember him but I also I mean I do vaguely remember him calling my mom like once every month to our home in Beirut and we'd answer the phone so he was he was this vague figure you know but he was there but not there at the same time but after he passed away my mom was also very much a photographer but not professionally she just photographed uh, her kids and mm -hmm. she was a and so she, the first thing she wanted to, to, to take possession of were his, you know, archives. And uh, now they've ended up with us. And oh. uh, yeah, so it's the beginning of a new project. Yeah. Are, so do you, do you have aunts and uncles from that side of the family, from your mother's side of the family? Yeah. So I have, uh, so she has uh, one sister um, who actually lives in California and uh is married to an American and has a oh. you know an American family and another uh, and two other brothers, uh, one two both who both mm -hmm. of who still live in Aramco in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So, are there other members of your family or extended family who who are interested in this work you're doing? Meaning, like, is there uh, is there also this um, you know interest in what? what Lebanon was like and what it was, you know, do they connect their experiences to what you're doing? Are they from my, from your family, from my family? Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So, uh, my, we all kind of work on, um, 
the subject of war and memory, but mm. we approach it in you know from our different disciplines. So my sister, At Rutgers? my oldest, my my oh. eldest sister uh, Munira is an anthropologist. Oh, and she's also a professor in the American University uh, in Egypt, and her her work is about life under recurrent war. Um, but she approaches this through, you know, anthropology. And my other sister, who's a comparative literature professor, also is interested in the, in the literature, literature that was did, generated during. Did she the do doctoral work on the subject? On the yeah, idea both of, war? of them. And both mm -hmm. of them actually got did their um, PhD in, Col in Columbia University, dealing with war and yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I uh, do it through, you know, photography and painting. My other brother is more of a musician, and he at some point was part of a, a band um, that the songs, like, were kind of reflective of the, you know, the, the situation, the, the post-war situation. And so, yeah, I guess we all kind of hmm. approach the subject. Are, are your mother and father now retired? Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, so my father used to be a... I mean, I never really knew how to describe, describe what he, he did. <laughs> he was a, he's a, was an entrepreneur, a businessman, uh -huh. and uh, he worked between uh, the UAE and um, and Italy, and uh, dealt with like uh, irrigational uh, irrigate pumps and uh, and my mom was uh, somehow related to agriculture. <laughs> yeah, agricultural pumps, um, and he also yeah that that was mainly his work. I mean, mm -hmm. he started off as a journalist and then went into the the business world. Um, and my mother was uh, was a mom uh, and a very good one, but she's also written a memoir called mm. uh, Brownies and Kalashnikovs, a Saudi woman's memoir. Wow. Where she uh, is, uh, writes about her uh, years growing up in Aramco as a, uh, as a Americanized, westernized, you know, Saudi Arab, and then marrying my father and then entering the Lebanese chapter, which was, you know, fraught with war. And it also was a transformation in her because my dad was a, was a big Arab nationalist at the time. And so he influenced her sort of uh, becoming, uh, you know, her sort of like outlook on life and stuff. Wait, really? Your mother was quite a, a creative force in your lives it sounds like and, yeah, and influencing the everything you you're, you're you're all doing it seems like yeah she was she yeah. was uh, when did she write the book she wrote it um quite a while ago actually okay. i think is it still out and available yeah it's available on amazon oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice it is uh, it was very interesting for us to read it because uh, she was also a very secretive person. So she never spoke about her like past Saudi life. And uh, also she never sort of spoke about what was happening outside of this like fake world that she created for us mm -hmm. and during the war. And when we read that book, it was just like revelation after revelation. Mm. It was, um, yeah, it was. So, uh it sounds like the next stage for the documentary is to get some funding, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I mean, the next stage right now it's um, it's in a it's in a rough cut form, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I have I've conducted all the interviews that I want, and it's just a matter of getting the funding for you know post production, and you know taking it to the next level. Are you doing all the camera work and audio work yourself? Yeah, uh, yes, I am. And I mean, Ahmed yeah. has helped me on several occasions. Ahmed's my husband with, let's say, the sound or like operating uh, mm -hmm. another camera 
Um, but I've mostly I've yeah. been doing it mostly. Where on did my you own. meet your husband? I met him in Egypt, actually, at oh. that artist residency. <laughs> yeah, we collaborated on a project, and mm-hmm. um, things took off from there. <laughs> so, is he also a photographer, filmmaker, or no? He's actually he's a, a journalist, and uh, he works at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Oh he's wow! A, the digital manager. And then, uh, are you doing all the production, post-production work yourself? Then. No, so I'm working with an editor. I don't do any of the editing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm just doing the camera work mm-hmm. and, you know, the interviews and uh, sound recording. And But I'm working with an editor to... That's where the funding needs to come in to, right. to help, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> help me hire another editor. And you mentioned you, you have some help from your husband. Uh, but... Um, but what you know, other than that, you know, what is what is it like to to record and get around, and you know, what what are the logistics like? So the logistics are quite. I mean, it's quite it's quite challenging. Uh, many of the the areas in Beirut are you're not allowed to. Walk, I mean, if you're walking around with a camera, raises a lot of suspicion. And we're speaking about like the downtown area, which, as a result of you know the assassination of the. Uh, former prime minister, there's been heightened security. And that happens to be the location of the Jewish uh, synagogue, the Megan David uh, synagogue, which has been fully renovated. And it's also where the the uh, neighborhood of the Lebanese Jews, which was called uh, Wadi, Abu Jam- uh, Wadi Abu Jamil, and it's called Harit al-Yahud, which means the you know the the neighborhood of the Jews mm. uh, is located. Does, does Wadi mean riverbed? Valley. Or? Valley. That's yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so getting access to that synagogue was near impossible because that area, which used to be very local, used to be all suits and it was an open marketplace and uh, very crowded and bustling, like any da- heart of like a, a downtown city, right? It has now become in in the sort of post-war. Uh, Landscape has become like a exclusive like resort for uh, the rich and famous, you know, for the, hmm. the for the people who can afford to rent those beautifully like renovated like Barbie houses. Yeah. Um, so to access the the synagogue was near impossible. I I managed to get, get permission, but when I entered, I wasn't allowed to film. So mm. I can only describe it to you. It's it's like been renovated exactly to like what it used to look like. Wow. But then you have other spaces that are, you know, abandoned, like the the cemetery, which uh, falls on the former Green Line, um, and the synagogue up in the mountains, Hamdun, and uh, the synagogue in, in Saida, which is now inhabited by, uh, uh, I think, a Palestinian and Syrian refugee family who live inside the synagogue and have created it. In, a home out of it. Mm. So the structure still remains. You see the, you know, the, the, the Star of David on the windows. Wow. But then you see like, you know, a sofa and a TV. Are they, like, they kind of like squatters or are they? So yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. They, they moved in in the 90s and um, they've been living there ever since. Mm. But they are not allowed to change anything about the structure because it's, you know, preserve, preserved cultural heritage right. site. Which is wild you know you, you just you think you don't think in the midst of all of this there's somebody actually paying attention right to cultural preservation yeah, historical yeah, preservation yeah. yeah and they're i mean they're very open to uh, they get a lot of visitors many people who figure out that that used to be i mean it's one of the oldest synagogues uh, probably in the world mm. they just open their doors and let you in and uh 
and point out that this is where the Star of David is, and this is where they become tour guides. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, because they deal with a lot of you know journalists or curious people. Yeah. So um, getting around then, though, you it, it it's a matter of getting permission or do you have to yeah, have to some sort of places. like certificates or cards mm, or yeah to f- like to get permission to enter the Megan David which is in mm-hmm. downtown you need you need to like approach the Solidaire which is the the renovation company in mm-hmm. charge of that area uh, and then you have limited access but the the abandoned sites um, are easily accessible mm. but now the sort of the gray the graveyards are I, I think there's been an effort from the Lebanese Jewish community abroad in in the US more. or in mm. London and in France uh, to protect them and they've built walls around them which I mean aren't mm-hmm. really protecting them yeah they're sort of marks it a little bit more yeah yeah, yeah. It, I mean, do you ever feel like you are visiting places where it it is dangerous, or is, is there any f- sense of that at all? Um, no, not really, actually. And when I went back with Raymond, uh, we had like super pleasant experiences. Mm. And he, when we were in Hamdun looking for his mother's summer home, we uh, went into an old, uh, you know, tailor shop uh, and. The man there had lived in, in Pamdun since, you know, I don't know, the, the 40s. He, so he knew every single Lebanese Jewish family that existed. And he even recognized Raymond's family. And so he was like, everybody was super welcoming and nostalgic. And in terms of the local population, no, there were no danger mm-hmm. or and, danger threats. Or, and the places that are abandoned... Does anyone still kind of claim ownership to those places? Meaning like it, like if people came back, they could come back? Or is it um, kind of just a, a left alone and, and left alone because there, there aren't even enough people who would want to move into there at this point? Or? Well, I mean, the abandoned homes have not been torn down because I think that the owners of the homes have not sold Hmm. Like they haven't sold the, their ownership rights of the house, so, so that's why they're. So there is still an adherence to the deeds of the homes and things like that. It's respected in some ways. Kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in certain places. Yeah. But um, but there's and, and so my other point was, but there's also not a people clamoring to take over these spaces. I mean, many of the homes that are, let's say, in Beirut have been maybe squatted. Oh, okay. But like Hamdun is up in the mountains, and uh, it's not that that heavily populated. Mm. So those homes. That you do see like Syrian refugees living there, and uh, when I would go to visit, you know, the empty spaces, you'd see like shoes and clothes and oh, okay. bags and traces of people. Even even at some point, the synagogue in Hamdun was squatted by, uh, I think, Syrian refugees. Mm. But then they put up a sign that said, you know, trespassing is forb- forbidden, and there that sort of lessened the. Hmm. squatting but if back to your question like if a Lebanese Jew returned and wanted to reclaim their home they could do so easily hmm. yeah so the you can see the trailer on your website rollacat.com but uh, that is what how long uh, maybe five eight minutes I think oh the trailer is uh, just two minutes two minutes oh, yeah. okay yeah will there be any more sort of screenings of that 40 minutes that you have or of the 40 minutes, no. But oh. <laughs> uh, of the longer version, yes. Hopefully... Oh, I'm sorry. I, maybe I mixed that up. What, what, what did you screen? Yeah, I, I screened the 40-minute version. Oh, okay, okay. So, but now that I'm, I'm hoping to, to, to complete uh-huh. it, um, the full version will be screened next. Oh, okay. Once, so once th- that there's, happens. N- there's nothing set for this until it's completed. 
at this point, except for raising money. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I was I was supposed to show this uh, documentary in the the Beirut International Film Festival this summer. Mm. Yeah, at the end of the summer. So if it's if it's complete by then, then it'll right. screen there. Okay, but so the next big thing is um, is this light in wartime show uh that opens uh, on wednesday june 6th yeah and i'm also having a two-person show uh on thursday oh great at the north of history uh gallery in the upper west side nice well so this won't be out in time for that <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> right well thank you for coming in thank you so much day. this was great yeah <laughs> all right uh bye everyone bye, bye.